بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم والحمد لله رب العالمين وصلى الله على سيدنا محمد وعلى اله وصحبه وسلم الحمد لله Today I wanted to look at a text message which is really one of the most fundamental messages uh, in the entire Quran which comes out of Surah Al-Hujurat which is the 49th chapter in the Quran and it's the chapter of the the actual the Hujurat are the quarters of the Prophet Sallallahu home and if you look at the surah uh, holistically it's really a chapter about behavior uh, in the homes and how we treat one another uh, reminding us not to make fun of one another to mock one another not to speak ill of each other so there's there's a whole bunch of injunctions uh, about just good character and good behavior but it ends with the last few verses are really quite extraordinary in summing up something about the human condition and that is the verse ya ayyuhan nasu inna khalaqnakum min dhakaran wa untha wa ja'alnakum shu'uban wa qaba'ila lita'arafu inna akramukum indallahi atqakum so this verse, which is the 13th verse in the 49th chapter, is calling ayuhannas, which is all of humanity. So whenever the Qur'an uses nas, it's talking to everybody, all of humanity. When it speaks to the believers, it says, amanu. Uh, but generally, Yahuwah Nas is an indication when it's to all of humanity that it's actually a Meccan chapter. So in Mecca, uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala addresses all of humanity and gives gives the method, message through the Prophet In Medina, then you get the differentiation. Yahuwah kafaru, people that rejected and then people that accepted. So in this verse, it's all of humanity, ayuhan nas. So, and, and in Arabic, the ayuha is like a, what they call tambih. It's a way of, it's evocative. It's a way of calling people's attention. And then the article of definition there is for totality, all of humanity. So it's saying, oh, humanity, oh, humankind, oh, mankind. Inna, surely, inna khadaqnakum in wa untha. Surely we have created you from a male and a female. So this is a reminder that all of humanity has been created from one male and one female. And in modern biology, they, they actually have designated the, the, these first two, they call them Adam and Eve, uh, based on the biblical idea, because most of these biologists are coming out of Christian or Jewish traditions. So they do call the first two people. And there, there is a belief now that all of humanity actually did come from two uh, people. So we know from just from the genetic information that we have a lot of these studies. There was actually a documentary called The Journey of Man, which looked at uh, all of the biological evidence now that they have that we really are all related from the same people. So in that way, we're all the same family and and the, and in the Quran they're called Banu Adam this this tribe so one of the things about human beings is that we are tribal by nature we fall into tribes and we get we fall into tribal mentalities so a lot of what's happening today is really tribalism 
because people, it's hard to get out of those ways of thinking. So we tend to think, we otherize people uh, who aren't in our tribe, whether it's an ideological tribe or whether it's an ethnic tribe or whether it's a linguistic tribe or whether it's a class tribe, like a certain elite group, or whether it's an educational tribe, all of these different tribes that make up human beings. But this really is talking also about just pure tribalism. It's reminding people that all of you are part of the same tribe. This is called Benu Adam, the tribe of humanity. And so this is the reminder that we're from Vekar and Untha, which is the male and the female. Uh, one of the things that uh, Iblis, according to the, the tradition, is that he, uh, in the Quran it says that he will continue to compel people until they change human nature. Uh, I will com- continue to compel them until they actually change human nature. So the fundamental nature of human beings is a fitra nature, principial nature, which has the male and the female. It's called a binary. So this idea of removing these things is, is really part of a long-term strategy to confuse human beings. And, and, but then it says, So once these two people were created, the male and the female, from them came what the Quran calls shu'ub and qaba'il. So the sha'ab is uh, peoples, and the qaba'il are tribes. And, and the, the, the mufassirun, the people, the, the exegetes, who actually uh, are scholars that have the ability to really interpret the Quran, which takes many, many years of study, learning, mastering 12 sciences, according to Ibn Juzay. But the, the scholars differ on this. So some of them say that the sha'ab, is uh, this is the it's bigger than a tribe so it's it's a a group of tribes that have a common father so for instance in arabia you have mudar and rabia are the two dominant tribes yeah mudar is is the branch that the prophet was from and then rabia is the branch that uh, beni tamim and the people in uh not beni tamim rather uh, uh rabia are the people like anaza and uh, these people now, like Al-Saud is from the Rabi'ah tribe. So these, these two tribes, Bani Tamim was actually from Mudar. So these two were the dominant shu'ub of the Arabs. And then from them come all the different tribes. And then you have the Yemeni tribes. And their sha'ab was Himyar and Kahlan. And from them come all the different Yemeni tribes. So that's one view. But the other is that the sha'ab is for the non-Arabs and the and the qaba'il is for the Arabs or tribal peoples. And I think that's a better way to look at it, that there's tribal peoples. So for instance, the Irish were once a tribal people. They're not really a tribe anymore, but they were once a tribal people, now, which they called clans. So in classical English, tribe actually means a group of goats, a tribe of goats. So, but, a, but a clan is a, a, a group of people who have a common father. So, for instance, you were from the uh, the O'Leary clan or the O'Connell clan or the O'Connor clan, then the Connor was the the progenitor of the O'Connor clan. That was the original one. So they all know they have a the same father, but 
and the Scottish were like that as well, and the French and all these different peoples, they're actually tribal people. But over time, they, the tribalism uh, dissipated and they, they formed into shu'ub, like peoples. So now you have the Irish people. They don't really see themselves as clannish anymore, even though they have some concept, like the, the Scottish still do. They have the Highlanders and some of them will be kilted into a clan and things like that. Uh, but they're, they're peoples now. And so the Anglo-Saxons were once tribal peoples. They're not anymore. In fact, a lot of the, the names that they have are things like Smith, which is from actually what they, they did. That's, a, that's a actually an occupational job. Or Carpenter. So you have like John Carpenter. That's because one of their ancestors was a carpenter. Uh, and, and many, many uh, examples like that. So European peoples were, used to be tribal. Now their tribes have diminished greatly. So you still have like Laplanders. So if you go, there's Aboriginal Europeans. Uh, that like in Finland, the people, the, the Laplander peoples and things like that. Or if you go into places like Greece, you still have families like that are almost tribal. They're clannish. But overall, tribes have been eliminated uh, in the West. Whereas if you go to Africa, where I live, for instance, in West Africa, tribes are f still very much a central part of, of, of the, the way they live and experience the world. And there are great advantages to that, but there's also extraordinary downsides. One of the great advantages of it is that there's a type of social welfare. So just like families will take care of themselves, tribes will do this also, So, which is a much larger family. So they actually help each other because they're from the same tribe. The downside of it is you'll find very often that they really look down on the other tribes. So each tribe will think they're superior uh, to the other tribe. And one of the things that I got very good at doing was distinguishing between different tribal groups based on physiognomy. But if I made a mistake, because I used to test myself and say, oh, you're from Yoruba or your Igbo or your Hausa or your Fulani. And if I was wrong, they'd get really upset. So I stopped doing it because uh, they, they would take it as an offense. It's like... In Mexico, I once asked somebody if he was an Indian, you know, Indio from Mexico, and he, he, got, he was offended by it. Because unfortunately in Mexico, a lot of Mexicans looked down on the Indians. In fact, when the Spanish ruled Mexico, and they still do, I mean, people don't see the Mexicans as uh, Spanish, but actually the, the, most of the people that are in power in Mexico are actually Europeans, they're not natives. But if you look at, in, in Mexico, they actually had 10 racial classifications to, to distinguish between people. So this is something human beings do, is that they, they use these taxonomies as ways of elevating one group over another group. Sometimes this is uh, about class, like very often in a lot of the more uh, industrialized and post-industrial societies, it's class that determines a person's worth. Whereas in previous societies, it had to do with lineage and where you were from. So what this verse is doing really is telling people that we made you shu'ub wa qaba'id. We made you, God did this, made you into different nations and tribes, lita'arafu, in order that you might come to know one another. 
In other words, the reason for this is to create these distinctions so that you can actually benefit from one another, the different gifts that have been given to different peoples. So it's lita'arafu, and in the commentaries they say la lita'arafu, not to hate one another, but to know one another. So this ma'rifa, this knowledge, uh, is the knowledge of other peoples and how they do things. And what we find, it's very interesting that people are very often prejudiced towards people they don't know. But if they know people, then they lose that prejudice about people because they see them as human beings as opposed to other. And so the verse is really talking about this fundamental problem that we have. So in the commentaries, Ibn Juzay al-Kalbi says, this is a reminder of the equality the taswiyya, and he actually uses that word, of the, the basic human equality, that we're equal in our humanity, and it's not these tribal distinctions that make us superior, but it's actually character. So people are superior by character. There are superior people, but it has nothing to do with race or color or even creed because... Somebody could uh, have the right creed, but be a horrible human being. So one of the things that this verse is really reminding us is that there's an essential equality in your humanity. So don't boast because you're from this tribe or that tribe, or because you're of this color or that color, or think you're better than another person, but rather know that and this is how the verse ends that verily the noblest the, the most honorable the most generous the most dignified because karama is dignity all those words are understood in that word the most noble amongst all of you with Allah with God are the people of the conscientious people, the dutiful people, the pious people, the people that, that are, are beautiful in their character and behavior, that this is what makes superior people, is character. And this is why in, in that extraordinary speech in Washington, D.C., when Dr. King said that he wanted to live in a country where people were judged by the content of their character, not by the color of their skin, that is exactly what this verse is, is telling us, that we should judge people by the content of their character and not for any other reasons. Because you're not superior by some accident of your being. In logic, they have this distinction between essence and accident. So an essence is, is, is what defines you. An accident is something that is secondary to your, to your nature. So you can take somebody who's has black skin, they can actually get a, a, an illness and turn white. And the same thing that happened for a white person, you get an illness and, and turn dark. So that, that's an accident. It's not essential to their character or nature. You can actually, in places like, there are certain countries where people use dyes to dye their skin color. So they can actually change their skin color because it's, it's accidental to their nature. One of the things that a lot of uh, modern uh, people now are promoting this idea, no, this is essential to my nature. This is going to define my being, like your sexuality defines your being. These aren't, uh, traditionally, this was no 
nobody had that understanding that people were defined by accidents. They were de defined by their essences. And so a human being's essence in our tradition is this, has the potential of being either good or evil. That, that's what the Prophet told us, that, that it has an inclination towards good, but it can be perverted. And, and, and this is the Najdain, the two roads that human beings have been guided on. You know, Native Americans have what they, in, in the Navajo tradition, they have what's called the, the walking path. And, and there's a belief in, in their tradition that everybody uh, will walk a path in their life, but they choose the path. That God has given us two paths, the path of righteousness, the path of virtue, and the path of, of viciousness, of vice, and wrongdoing. And what's amazing is that human beings really do know these distinctions by fitra, by their principal character. If you, if, if you give a cat food, it'll eat it with you. But if it steals it, it runs away. So even the cat knows what's right and wrong. Very few people, I mean, there are sociopathic people that, that these are called shayateen al-ins in our tradition, demonic humans. There are those people, but they're very rare. The vast majority of people really do have an innate understanding of right and wrong, and then they choose. But because we're weak, we fail, and, then, and what we have to do is work on our character until, we, until goodness is habituated. So, this really is one of the most striking uh, verses uh, in, in the Quran to be understood at a deep level because this really, people, all peoples have gifts. And some people, if you look at certain peoples like the Indo-European peoples have been given a lot of gifts in sciences, like if you go to India and Persia, Greece, these areas. If you go to China, they, all these other gifts. You go to Africa, there's all these other gifts that this is part of the, the diversity that Allah has made. But nobody is superior because of their ethnicity or because of their color or because of the ethnic group that they come from. No, what makes them superior is in the cultivation of, of their goodness and their character and their virtue. And that does make them superior. And there are superior, in our tradition, there are superior civilizations those civilizations that are virtuous and that strive to do good, those are superior to civilizations that use their power for harm and for doing other things. So this idea somehow that we don't make a judgment about things, that's completely antithetical to our tradition. I mean, we really believe in the superiority of a civilization who, who's, who's, whose goal is to, uh, uh, is to work towards a more... Uh, just, merciful, and compassionate society whose endeavors are for the common weal, for the common goodness, and not for the personal inurement or, uh, or, or benefit of individuals or the powerful against the weak, things like that. And that's why you're judged, cultures are judged by how they treat their, the weakest amongst them. You're judged by how they treat their women, by how they treat their children, by how they treat their prisoners. All of these things will determine the goodness or the foulness of a culture or a civilization. So it's a, it's a beautiful uh, verse that should be well understood because uh, it would solve a lot of the problems that we have around the world of one people thinking that they're over another people because of anything other than character. 
and and belief in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, which is something that unfortunately in the, in the modern, a lot of modern people are losing this, but uh, traditional peoples never lost this. And there's still places in the world where the vast majority of people still hold to a belief in, in, in the creator and a, and a reverence. And now you have these um, post-industrial cultures where they make fun of God and they mock God, but God will not be mocked. And, uh, and it's, it's only he, one of the names of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is Al-Halim, the forbearing, the one who, who's patient with his creation. But there is a reckoning. Alhamdulillah. Anyway, so those are some thoughts on Surat Al-Hujarat, verse 13, in the 49th chapter of the Book of Allah. Wasadaqallahu al-Azim. Alhamdulillah. I did have a, a story that I mentioned last week that I wanted to um, uh, tell, and that that is, it's it's very interesting how. Uh, you meet people along the way in the path of life, and and sometimes they're they're brought into your lives in very interesting ways. I when I, when I was younger and I read Dickens, I always thought Charles Dickens had the, all these contrived plots because they they'd always come at the end like everybody's related, and 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 it always seemed. But what I realized as I got older that he was actually dealing with the mystery of Qadr with faith and how things really are interrelated and how everybody uh, in some mysterious way, these people that come in and out of our lives, um, there's, there's just all these really, really wonderful, strange, marvelous connections that you begin to see and discern a pattern. And uh, one of the, uh, Ibn Nahwi wrote a beautiful qasida about this where he said, you know, these, the, the, the pattern of life is a, is a carpet woven by a wise hand. But there is a pattern in life. And so um, I, I, uh, I had a, um, I read this article about this uh, extraordinary woman called... Um, Helwig Klein, and Helwig Klein, she was actually, a, 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 when she was in her 20s, she was studying at the University of Hamburg, and she, uh, she, was, she was a Jewish lady in Germany who was studying Arabic studies and Islamic studies. She actually did her PhD on a history of early Islam. She translated a book from Arabic. So I found out about this lady, Helwig Klein, and I just she was such an extraordinary uh, woman, and the way they described her, her professors, that she was very gentle and and very soft spoken and uh, painfully shy, but brilliant. And so she actually did her PhD. And but when in when the Nazis came to power, uh, they they actually refused to, even though she she did her dissertation and it was given a summa cum laude, which is with the highest praise. They wouldn't give her because they wrote on her thing that she was a Jew, so they weren't going to give her her PhD. But it turned out one of her teachers, who was a very good man, um, he he asked her uh, 
uh, if she'd be interested in working on the Hans Ver dictionary. So she actually got a job with Hans Ver, and the dictionary was actually commissioned by uh, the Nazis because Hitler wanted uh, Mein Kampf to be translated into Arabic. And so the dictionary was commissioned by the Nazis. And so two, two of these Jewish people, one of them was this woman, Hedwig, uh, Hedwig Klein. Uh, and she, Hedwig, I think if I said Hedwig, it should be Hedwig. Yeah, Hedwig Klein. So she um, worked on this dictionary and did exemplary work according to the people that, that worked with her. But she ended up um, in, uh, Hans Ver tried to keep her on, but the Nazis ended up arresting her in 1942. She actually tried to get out of Germany and got as far as Antwerp and then her, sh her ship was sent back to Hamburg. She was on her way to India. She'd gotten a job but uh, they sent her back. And so she ended up, um, it's a, quite a tragic story. But what was interesting is I read this story and it really affected me because I've been using Hans Ver for, I think f at least 40 years. And, and, and I, I've, I know the book so well and I've read it so many times. So when I found out that these poor people ended up in Auschwitz and were murdered, by the Nazis. I mean, it's enough just to have killed somebody like her, just this really brilliant scholar who should have been allowed to do her scholarly work. But the same day, I got a letter from this organization in Hamburg, Germany, of these Jewish people that asked me to write something about Islamic studies. It was so serendipitous. It really affected me just because I just was thinking all day about this lady, Hedwig Klein, and just the debt that we owe people. You know, we don't think about the debt that we owe people for the work that they do. Like when you look, all these houses that we're living in, these were built by people, and many of them are now gone. All the food that we eat, who cultivated those lands and did all of that breaking the earth? Like the indebtedness of human beings to other human beings is so great. And we just take these things for granted, and we don't think about it. We don't think about all the nights that, that scholars stayed up to leave these books behind that we read and benefit from. We don't think about all the people, you know, that sewed our clothes and, and all the things that, that are done for us. And those are just people. Those, I mean, if, if we really thought deeper than that, those are just people. Who made those people to do all those things for you? And that, that's, that's your Lord. And so when you start thinking about all the things every single day of your life, I, I was once talking to this man and he said to me, you know, he, he wasn't a Muslim, but he wanted to marry this Muslim girl. And uh, so he was thinking about becoming a Muslim. And so he asked me like, you know, what was the biggest benefit of becoming Muslim? And I said, well, I think the biggest benefit is that it's just an extraordinary way of showing gratitude to your Creator because we actually pray five times a day and just 
turning and being in a state of gratitude. And so then he said, he said, well, yeah, I, I suppose God's done some things for me in my life. And he literally said that to me. And I just looked out. I said, if I took your temperature right now, it's probably 98.6 or at least thereabouts. Um, who do you think's keeping it at that, at that temperature? Like, I mean, every single moment of our life, it's God that's sustaining this whole thing. So it's just interesting how people have these perceptions. Anyway, Hedwig Klein is somebody uh, that uh, just occupied my thoughts. And, and every time now that I go to the Hans Ver, she does come to mind, you know, this poor, innocent little uh, Jewish girl who actually, in a letter, said that she believed that God, that Allah, in the letter she actually used Allah, she said, I, I believe Allah will help me um, because I've met one of his friends. And so we don't know who that is, but maybe in the afterlife we'll get to, I'll get to ask her who she was referring to, inshallah. So anyway, that was a story that I wanted to tell.